I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We've made our way to the final commandment in this series of the Ten Commandments. And like we have done in the past, we'll look at this commandment in two, uh, over two weeks. We'll look at the positive side this morning, and we'll look at the negative side next week. And then we will spend at least one week on a conclusion to the series, reflecting upon just how we are to respond, the, rele- the ongoing relevance of the Ten Commandments. And so this is an important message regarding the Tenth Commandment to hear anytime something doesn't go as we expect. How should we respond when we're unable to get what we want? How do we cope with suffering and loss? The world offers many coping mechanisms that are dangerously misguided. Buddhism and New Age meditation teach us that life is suffering that's caused by craving. And so the goal of Eastern meditation is to learn to eliminate craving altogether. That's one, that's the answer. Just eliminate craving. Don't desire anything. That's nirvana. Today, that might sound something like accept defeat. Stop striving after something that's beyond your reach. But that would be like telling a struggling married couple to stop craving a deeper, more affectionate marriage. If you want a happy marriage, just stop trying so hard. Just give up. Remove all expectations, and your spouse will always be sure to live up to them. God has created us with with capacities to experience deep emotions. And so to cut yourself off from that experience might save you some pain, but it will also prevent you from experiencing the deepest joys that God intends for you to experience. Those who go through traumatic experiences in life, they oftentimes build barriers so that they won't go through it again, and that, that's just a natural reaction. But the problem is they begin to miss out on the experience of genuine and healthy fellowship. So does that sound like a good strategy? And of course not. Learning to be content does not mean that you no longer fight and strive for what is good and right and true in life. Contentment doesn't mean you just don't care anymore. In fact, I would say those who know contentment, genuine, true contentment, are more inclined to strive for the good of others, even if they don't realize it's good for them. So this commandment's related to all of the commandments in the second table, the fifth through the ninth commandment. It's kind of the internal desire that motivates us to commit sins against our neighbor. And so as I've mentioned already, we'll look at the positive side today, contentment, and then next week we'll look at coveting, the negative side of this commandment. Before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we recognize that even now we, we long to be fed. We long to be nourished by it. We need your word. We need your spirit to give us eyes to see, to give us ears to hear, to open up our hearts to this truth that we might respond obediently. That your word would be living and active. 
that it would cut to the heart, that it would convict us where we need to be convicted, that it would comfort us by the gospel. Lord, that we might be transformed as we respond in faith and as your spirit is at work through your word. Lord, help us to listen in, intent, attentively. Lord, help us to, to grow and to even recognize your spirit at work in our hearts, that we would be filled with the joy of our salvation, be reminded of your covenant promises to us, and be convicted to carry those promises out to a, a watching world who needs to hear this truth that we can only truly find rest and satisfaction and true contentment in Christ alone. We never shy away and never be ashamed of that truth, that you might be glorified. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the original audience um, frequently admired the security and prosperity of their foreign neighbors. And they were tempted to explore and adopt ways that their, the other nations around them lived including their worship of false gods. And so their desires revealed this lack of contentment with God. So if you're following along in the outline that I provided, it's just a simple one, two sections. First, we'll look at inward contentment. The idea and the need for inward contentment in our relationship with God so that we're not wandering. We're not tempted by, by secular ideologies. Right? Instead of coveting your neighbor's house, you must learn to be content with your own living arrangement. That doesn't mean that you never seek to improve your living conditions. It's not wrong to desire to improve your financial status, but you should do so from a place of satisfaction rather than desperation. Instead of coveting your neighbor's wife, you must learn to be content with your own spouse or singleness. Wayward eyes, whether on the street or online, are a hint that you lack an appropriate contentment. And so this is an inward problem that we oftentimes justify by pointing to some other outward circumstance, right? Pointing to our spouse's lack, right? He or she made me do it. If, if he or she were more aware of my needs, I wouldn't be looking elsewhere for happiness, or we blame our inward lack of contentment upon our outward circumstances. So the possession uh, of male and female servants, as we read in this verse, this was a sign of wealth. Right? The ox and the donkey represented a neighbor's wealth as well. So it's unclear for, for this wilderness generation who's been rescued out of Egypt, out of this house of slavery, and now they're in the wilderness. We know they had livestock with them. But we don't necessarily know who owned it. We don't know who's, who was in possession of that and who had the servants and then who didn't. 
uh, it would seem likely that it represented a, minor- a minority of those who were numbered. And, and yet the desire for servants and the desire for livestock was probably universal. Coveting others' animals would be equivalent to coveting a neighbor's job or a neighbor's income. uh, This is a a universal problem. When Nelson Rockefeller was asked how much money it takes to be happy, he replied, just a little bit more. And so are you content with your resources or are you constantly seeking just a little bit more? The love of money is not only a problem for the rich, it's an equally destructive problem among the poor. Right? And, and you can possess true contentment regardless of your financial circumstances. Writing from prison, Paul encouraged the Christians in Philippi with these words in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. He said, not that I am speaking of being in need, as he's commending them for helping him, for sending support. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice the the lack of universalization. He's not saying everyone should strive to be rich so that you can be content. He's not saying everyone should strive to give away all of their, their money and just live in poverty, because that's the secret to true contentment. No, he recognizes that Christians can be both, uh, they can have, uh, you can have rich Christians and you can have poor Christians. In fact, he experienced both at different times in his life. And he also notes the need to learn contentment in both seasons. So it's a struggle, regardless of your financial circumstances. It's all too easy for us, I think, as in in this modern day, to, to sort of treat material blessings as a litmus test to recognize spiritual blessings, right? I am experiencing all this because God is showing favor to me. It might be judgment. He might be allowing you to accumulate wealth and and knowing that you're not going to use it for his good. It reveals a a lack of contentment in him. Or it could be the opposite. There's not a one-for-one correlation there. We need to learn to be contentment regardless of our circumstances. That's Paul's point. And so one sign that you are content is when you can see God's blessing even in the midst of your trials. Think about some of the greatest covenant blessings that God has poured out upon his people. They are almost always coming after significant trials. And I don't want to just gloss over these, but, I, but we do need to, to move on. But I just want to list a couple of them. But think about the significance of these trials. The covenant of grace was given to Adam immediately after the fall. The covenant, of, the covenant made with Noah came immediately after the flood. Children of promise came after many barren years. Think of, of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, even Ruth. 
All of them experienced years of barrenness before a child of promise was born. And so we find this pattern throughout Scripture. And I'm almost certain that it, you don't have to look very far in your own life to see the pattern there too. And oftentimes the greatest blessings from God come after significant trials. And so God is doing something in you and through you through your trials. James encourages us to count it all joy when we face trials because they deepen our faith and produce steadfastness. And so rejoice when the loss of material status or, or material goods serves to produce spiritual growth. You should rejoice in that. God is training us to store up our treasures in heaven. Like Abraham, we do this when we place our hope in the superior spiritual blessing that is gained rather than the earthly reward that we might or might not enjoy. Right? Abram was moving toward the promised land. Right? And he enjoyed some of that. Others in the, in the covenant community didn't enjoy the promised land. That material blessing, though, was always meant to point forward to the new heavens and new earth, the enjoyments of that eternal inheritance. And we, and we look forward to that by faith. Right? And so we'll come back to this critical lesson later on. But by inward contentment, in this first section, I, I don't mean just contentment with yourself or contentment with your circumstances, but there's a personal delight in divine grace. This is how um, Jeremiah Burroughs described it in the rare jewel of Christian contentment. He said, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So it's an inward contentment in divine grace. It's not reaching a point where you don't care. And so that means we can only really learn contentment as we follow the example of God's Son, I think about it. Christ came into this world through a poor family. He had few possessions throughout his earthly life and ministry. In fact, he was heavily dependent upon the hospitality of his followers. And we never once hear of Christ desiring a better station in life. He doesn't complain about his lot. He isn't seeking promotion from worldly standards. In fact, if anything, he actively shunned every opportunity he had to improve his status. Rejecting the temptations of the devil in the wilderness at the very beginning of his ministry. Rejecting the temptations at the end of his ministry, leading all the way to obedience, even death on the cross, as we read in Philippians 2. And so the only way we can even begin to address our own lack of contentment is to find a superior satisfaction in Christ. All right, we join Augustine in praying, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And so it is in Christ that we find our source of true contentment. Listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it in chapter 13, verse 5. 
Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why could you be content with what you have? Because you have Christ. He's everything you need and he's more than you deserve. So regardless of your circumstances, you have Christ. The indwelling presence of Christ's spirit is the source of motivation to seek and find contentment. And so the spirit does not eliminate our desires, but he rightly guides them in such a way that they bring glory to God alone. And that's an experience we enjoy throughout our Christian life. And we'll have ups and downs in that experience. We'll have successes and failures as we rely upon our flesh or, you know, we wrestle with our flesh by the spirit. Cornelius Vonk puts it like this. He says, when our heart has become a dwelling place for Christ and his spirit, his enemies become our enemies and everything that he commands us becomes our preferred desire. So that we delight in his law. We delight in his commandments. When we see our Savior as possessing everything we need and want, we can learn to be content in every situation. And so, yes, we'll fail. We'll still fail to find contentment in every situation, but the Spirit leads us to repentance, to recognize our lack of contentment, and to repent of that. And like David, we, we cry out for the Lord to create in us a clean heart, to renew a right spirit within us, one that is satisfied in him alone. But it doesn't stop there because true inward contentment leads us to practice an outward charity. And that's your second point in your outlines. Inward contentment leads to an outward charity. Kevin DeYoung says, there's nothing necessarily wrong with noticing what other people have. But most of us don't stop and notice so that we can give thanks to God for his blessing to others. We notice, and then we stop being thankful for all that God has given to us. So we notice what others have, and then it, it removes our gratitude because we grow envious and covetous. And so those who are content with their own living arrangement are actually capable of rejoicing when their neighbor is able to make some home improvement or upscale to a new neighborhood. But that can be something we rejoice in. I wonder how oftentimes we've attended a housewarming party really more out of a competitive spirit to see what they possess rather than to celebrate the Lord's blessing. Maybe we can expect that from a secular society, but do we carry that spirit in ourselves? When you're wholly devoted to your own spouse, you'll be capable of rejoicing in the good marriage of your neighbor's. We won't be interested in the latest gossip about who's going through a tumultuous marriage or a divorce. Our, our interest will be for the pre preservation of marriage, the promotion of happiness within the homes of our neighbors. When you're, when you're not constantly striving for improved financial arrangements, you'll be capable of celebrating when your neighbor gets a promotion or a new job 
right? Instead of coveting their position, their status and possessions, you rejoice in God's blessing upon them. You rejoice in their good. And so this rejoicing and celebrating the well-being of our neighbors ought not to be filled with false and fickle emotions or motives, right? Our, our affection for them should be genuine. There's a, a fullness in our affection. It's also, there's a, this internal, so when we say outward charity, it begins with a desire for their good, an internal desire for the good of our neighbors, It's not as if we only need to learn internal commitment for our own situation, but we need to be to have that gracious attitude toward our neighbor. So that inward contentment teaches us that outward charity. Romans 12:15 says rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. The book of Esther portrays Mordecai as an example of someone who was favored among his kinsmen. And it says why? Because he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. He had a good reputation among them. He was favored among them because he was good to them. He loved them and he supported them and he promoted their well-being. When you promote that well-being of others, you reflect the love of God. Unfortunately, modern evangelicals understand the love of God as being uncritical. Right? In other words, you should never criticize what someone else believes. You should just love them. And this kind of foggy theology is what leads Christians to dabble in worldly theories and practices. It's one of the reasons I think there's an increase in many believers looking to or highly dependent upon things like the Enneagram or yoga or New Age practices of meditation. This idea that you're meant to just empty your mind, empty yourself, well, that's related to the emptying of your desires. It's unchristian. J.I. Packer said, but desire that is sinfully ordered or sinfully disordered needs redirecting so that we stop coveting others' goods and long instead for their good and God's glory with and through it. And there's that vertical relationship to God. We, we desire his glory. And one of the ways in which we glorify him is we seek the good of our neighbor. So outward charity always complements the truth. It doesn't contradict it. We do not disregard one attribute of God in order to highlight another. So showing outward charity doesn't bury the truth or the need to dig for the truth, the need to uncover lies and false teaching and to rebuke it and to hold people accountable. Right? Instead of coveting after the idols of foreign neighbors, Israel ought to have been faithfully pro proclaiming the truth and rebuking the practices of their neighbors. That would have been the loving thing to do. That would have been the charitable thing. And so this is why the, the prophets rebuked them for their adultery. right? They longed for the gods that they did not have. And the one true God handed them over to their sin. 
Jesus came and he delivered a similar message to the religious leaders who abandoned God's word for their own selfish gain. They didn't look out for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. They were more concerned about their own station in the world than they were about God. And yet, how often are we tempted in the same manner for the world's affection? You might win your neighbor's affection by forsaking the truth, but in so doing, you forfeit giving glory to God. And so if you're going to be any different than the religious leaders who were condemned by Jesus, then you must seek a different kind of affection than they were seeking. They were driven into their sin by their desires. Thomas Chalmers spoke of the expulsive power of a new affection. It's a wonderful sermon. You should look it up. Thomas Chalmers, the expulsive power of a new affection. He's talking about the idea that you, you, if you want to replace an, a sinful desire, a sinful disordered desire, then you have to replace that de- desire with a superior desire, one that glorifies God. And so when we're motivated by the love of Christ, we rightly prioritize God and neighbor above ourselves. So this, this commandment, it contains internal and external aspects. It involves inward and outward elements. And when we really analyze the relationship between all of these factors, we come to the conclusion that those who are the most content are the most capable of expressing charity toward others. Because our Lord represents the epitome of personal contentment, it's not surprising that we find him to be the epitome of charity. In the gospel, we find a Savior who was entirely content inwardly and entirely charitable outwardly. It's only in Christ that our deepest desires can find their satisfaction. So those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied in Christ alone. And their delight will be to do his will. John 4, 31 through 34 teaches us that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this this reminder that we need to hear at a time where we're maybe confused, maybe going through a season of of waiting and maybe even doubting what the future holds for this nation or for our own circumstances, maybe even in this state or in this city. Our circumstances will change. That's to be expected. And yet regardless, Lord, teach us to be content because we have Christ. Just to find our rest and our satisfaction in him alone, to not seek and search for it elsewhere as the Israelites did, as we so often find ourselves doing, placing our trust in the wrong things. 
Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Lord, teach us to increase our faith, even in times of trial and tribulation. Should persecution increase upon your church, Lord, may we respond to that persecution with boldness, standing firm upon the truth of your revelation not forsaking that truth in order to find the affection of the world, Lord, but pointing, to, pointing them to the truth and even rebuking them for their false doctrine, their false understanding. Lord, as, as those who seek to glorify you and to love our neighbors, help us to do so in a way that doesn't compromise one for the other that doesn't compromise truth in order to show love, or doesn't doesn't so focus upon the truth that that we eliminate a a loving uh, affection for our neighbor. Lord, may we learn to weep over the lost, those who reject the truth, even as Jesus exemplified as he entered into Jerusalem, weeping, knowing that they would send him to the cross. And we'll never be in a, a season in this, in this life that's a, that, that doesn't experience or endure various degrees of trial and tribulation. But Lord, in the face of that suffering, deepen our faith, deepen our love for Christ. Reveal him and his beauty all the more to us so that he becomes that superior desire. Now we begin to forsake the pleasures this world has to offer. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.